Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, hello everyone, Stakui here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the History of Everything. Welcome back, everyone. We have had a lot of different stuff that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks, getting everything prepared. We've had a lot of videos, a lot of everything taken off. We, I think, I, I didn't announce this here before. Did I announce this before on the History of Everything page when we made uh, 100,000 subscribers on the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel? No, we did not announce it. Okay, but we did. That's awesome. And I, I really love and appreciate the support from all of you. So first things first, before we get into this, please make sure if you want ad free episodes, if you want bonus episodes, please go and check out our Patreon. It's a dollar a month and it gets you access to additional episodes as well as ad free episodes of this. Also, remember to get the official History of Everything podcast coffee, which you can find a link for in the description below and make sure to use code Lewis for a discount on it. Oh, and if you hear any kind of like roughness in my voice or anything like that, I apologize. I'm a little bit under the weather, but there are still a lot more stuff that you can hear from me where I'm not like that. So please make sure to check out the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Check us out on Patreon. Do whatever it is that you can help to do to support us. I greatly appreciate all of you being here because it just makes these stories so much more fun to tell. Well, you know, when people are actually listening. Otherwise, it's going to end up being like in situations where I'm telling my wife a story and she's just completely zoned out because I didn't realize that she had like her AirPods in or something. Oh, wait, were you talking to me? Yeah, G- Gabby. <laughs> G- you're literally going through Instagram right now. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> I was pulling up my notes on the Anglo-Zulu war. Yes, that is what today's topic is. I know I technically hadn't started yet, so I know that's why you were doing it. But today's episode, yes, indeed, this is on the Anglo-Zulu war. So this video actually comes at the request of one of my patrons. This is not a patron exclusive, but I do want to take more suggestions from my patrons who support me and create the videos and the episodes, the different things that I make. I want to make the stuff based off their suggestions. So this one comes from King Baby Bob, who wanted us to talk about the Anglo-Zulu War and the Battle of Rourke's Drift. So, all right, we are going to talk about a war, but every war has a beginning. And it has a reason for being fought. I mean, that, that's natural. Guys, that I've said it before, but that could be good. That could be bad. It really does depend on how you look at it. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's a war. It's a conflict. It has a story. So what we're going to need to do is go back some years before the actual war takes place. And we are going to look at the two sides. Gabby, are you, when I say the Anglo-Zulu War, are you familiar with this at all? The Sabaton song, Rock Strip. Yes. Okay. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, Sabaton did a song based off this battle. It's really good. Rourke's Drift, one of my personal favorites. This is the story of that, though initially it's going to be the lead up to it. So the Zulu, very famous. The Zulu are one of those groups like as African warriors that are perhaps as romanticized as Vikings and samurai and all that. I talk about romanticization a lot. One of the African versions that is that is definitely the Zulu. That's because they were amazing. They were. They were. The speed at which they fought their formation. Come on. I know you're saying that because you're referencing all the stuff that I've talked about because one of the first battles we ever did was what? It was Spartans versus Zulus, wasn't it? It was Spartans versus Zulus. And hey, you should be proud of me for remembering the bull and the horns. You do remember. Oh, look at you. Because it was fascinating. You know, it's one of those things where you just really don't hear people talk about Zulu fighting formations. You You hear them. Uh, talk of their speed and their stand, but you really went into detail with that video. Specifically for combat. Yeah, because I, I love looking at the different tactics because for anyone who is not aware of what I'm talking about, there was this famous British, um, not exactly a saying, but it's like part of the doctrine that the British had when treating the Zulu was to treat the infantrymen as cavalry because they were so remarkably fast and lightly armored 
that when they moved, it was very difficult that you would think, oh, they're only going to be capable of moving, you know, 10 miles today and they would double it or whatever. It's not just in terms of the distance, but the speed at which they would move on the battlefield, they would be on your position before you even realized that they were there, much in the same way as a cavalry charge. So the Zulu were a Nguni people. There's probably going to be a number of African pronunciations in here specifically for this region. I'm going to get things wrong. I apologize, but bear with me. It's going to happen. So initially, the Zulu, a little background on them, they were a, it was like a small tribe or chieftainship. I'm not actually sure what I would use the terminology for that, but you essentially had the tribe of the Zulu that was situated near the White Mufulosi River. And they there were provided the nucleus for the kind of regional chieftainates, chief. Again, it's all these different tribes that are ruled by the different chiefs. And that was their region that over time would eventually form into the Zulu kingdom during the 1810s and early 1820s. The nearby Mithanawa Confederacy, which was under its leader, Dingosweo, he reigned from 1809 to 1817. He had established close links with the Zulu. But when he died, the Zulu leader, Shaka, he then ruled from 1816 to 1828, and he established his people's dominance over their neighbors using a well-disciplined and efficient fighting force. Shaka was pretty badass and crazy. I, I could do an extensive podcast on him. I think that I probably should because his story is wild, especially since his death is not, um, it's not one of those ones that you typically hear about, like in the way that a ruler would die, but I don't want to spoil that here. Oh, I want to spoil it, but I won't. It, go Okay, you know what? You know what? Go for it. Wasn't he killed by his own people because he went insane and put these insane rules after the death of his mother that they couldn't have cows, they couldn't milk cows, they couldn't grow food? Yes. But his brothers killed him, yes. Because to of that. To save everyone else. Yeah. Now, mi- mean, mind you, mind you, the Zulu people, it wasn't like it was an uh, industrial society. It was an agricultural society, and it measured your wealth in crops, but more importantly, cattle. Cattle is how you measured your true wealth and worth. So if you're if he's killing cows and cows are not allowed to have kids and all these other crazy rules, it's literally it's like telling people who went to nowadays and go, okay, uh, empty your bank accounts and burn the money in the streets. That's what we're doing in um, morning morning for our leader's death or whatever. Maybe next week. No, the mother of our leader. There you go. That's what it would be. Maybe next week's episode should be on Shaka Zulu because he went from amazing, insane ruler to to insane. Well, yeah. Yes. That's kind of how things go with people there, but it, it, it is what it is. So Shaka, right, he establishes his people's dominance over the region and over his neighbors, and he uses this well-disciplined and efficient fighting force, and he expands his kingdom's area of control from roughly the Mizimkulu River in the north all the way to the Tugela River in the south, and from the Drakensberg Mountains east all the way over to the coast. So under Shaka, he built a system of fortified settlements of things that were known as Amakanda. And in these things, you had young men who would be drafted into the Amabuto, which are the age sets or regiments, which was an organizational tactic that Shaka learned while serving under the Mithenawa military command when he was under Dingus Weyo. This would be the system that you would have for localized regiments to be able to defend against raiders, provide protection, and engage in military conflicts. The basic idea of this, the way the age regiments worked, is that you would have the men grouped into these regiments, as the name implies, based off their age. So you'd have older men working to, it's it's almost like think of classes. Like if we did a thing where it was middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, they were all equipped together into their own kinds of regiments for when they went fighting. Except in this case, you'd have much older men adult men and then young adult men and that's how you'd have it equipped and they each had their own different privileges they had different fighting roles it was a very good system for how they utilized it it's just it was very specific to their tribal system so during digane's reign which was shaka zulu's half-brother i think that was actually one of the guys that murdered him but anyway during his reign the zulu kingdom began to have to deal with um Outside powers, like the British, you know, the British just coming in there and doing things in Africa, which is definitely what the British would always do, as well as the Boers, which, okay, 
The boars, I, I, people have asked me to do something on the boar wars. That is probably something that I will cover here in the future. It's just, it's one of those things that is very contentious. People get very passionate about it. So the thing about this is that Degane had formed an alliance with his brother, Mapande. Degane was deposed by Mapande in 1840 and then later killed. So under Mapande, who reigned from 1840 to 72, portions of the Zulu territory were gradually taken over by the Boers and by the British, who had moved into the neighboring Natal region in 1838. So the Boers then seized the bulk of the Zulu kingdom south of the Black Mufalozi. But they were compelled to return the main region between the Black Mufalozi and the Tugela to the Zulu after the British went and annexed Natal in 1843, because now the British were going to be overseeing anything. It wasn't just the Boers that were going to be able to do whatever they wanted. Now everything had to go through the British. And this is where the interactions start to get a little bit off. Because in 1861, you have Untonga. This is the brother, or one of the brothers, of Quechueo. I'm pretty sure that's how I'd pronounce his name, but I might be wrong on that. Actually, wait, Gabby, you just went ahead and looked it up. What, what, what was it? Quechueo. or Quechueo? Quechueo. Yeah. Quechueo. He, he had more of a sh sound at the beginning. Quechueo. Like, oh, as in like with the Italian, because it begins with a C. Yeah. That's the thing that confuses me, because it could be a K or it could be a S sound. So it's Quechueo. Okay, so Quechueo here. So you have Sechueo, and Umtonga is the brother of Sechueo, the son of Zulu King Mampande. So Umtonga fled to the Utrecht district, and Sechueo assembled an army that was near the border there. Now, according to the Boers, what happened is that Sechueo offered the farmers a strip of land along the border if they would surrender his brother to him. The Boers complied on the condition that Umtonga's life was going to be spared. And in 1861, Mpande signed a deal transferring this land to the Boers. The southern boundary of the land added to a trek ran from Rourke's Drift on the Buffalo to a point on the Pangola River. So the boundary was beaconed in 1864. But then in 1865, Umtonga fled from Zululand to Natal and Sechueo, seeing that basically he had lost his part of the bargain, like he no longer had the thing that he had bargained the land away for, he feared that Umtonga might be used by the British or the Boers to supplant him to put in a kind of puppet government. And as Mampande, like this had happened to him to supplant Digane. And so he caused the beacon to be removed and also claimed that the land ceded by the Swazis to Lindenburg that was completely invalid. See, the Zulus asserted that the Swazis were their vassals, and therefore, because they were vassals, they had no actual right to part with territory to the British or the Boers. They were the ones who had to control things. So during the year, a Boer commando under Paul Kruger and an army under Sechueo were posted to defend the newly acquired Utrecht border. The Zulu forces took back their land north of Pangola then, and questions were, you know, asked about okay, what are, is all of this actually valid? Like, what are these documents that were signed by the Zulus that concern the Utrecht Strip? And in 1869, the services of Lieutenant Governor of Natal were accepted by both parties as being the arbiter of it. But, and while the attempt was made to try and settle the disagreement that they were having over land, it didn't exactly go anywhere, and so the, uh, the whole thing proved to be unsuccessful. This was the political background when Sechueo became the absolute ruler of the Zulus upon his father's death in 1873. And as ruler, Sechueo went about trying to revive the military methods of his uncle Shaka as far as possible, even succeeding in equipping his regiments with firearms. Now, it is believed that he caused the Zosa people in the Transki to revolt, and that he aided the Sikukuni in his struggle with the Transvaal. His rule over his own people was tyrannous, at least by Western accounts. As an example, you have the bishop, uh, bishop Schroeder, who was of the Norwegian Missionary Society, and he describes Sechueo as being an able man, but for cold, selfish pride, cruelty, and untruthfulness worse than any of his predecessors. Now, mind you, mind you, treat this with a grain of salt. This is a Western missionary in Africa speaking about one of the leaders. What we understand about Sechueo 
is that he generally had a very good relation with the British, but not necessarily with the church. He did not like people converting in his lands. He wouldn't go after the missionaries. But if there were people in his lands who had converted, they didn't necessarily receive the best treatment. He didn't like the uprooting of his traditions and his control. Because if people converted and they were following this foreign church, then that meant that they were not adhering to his authority. And if there was anything that he wanted to do, it was control his authority. In fact, actually, wait, I think that we've talked about stuff like that before here, Gab. Remember the whole thing with your family and like the, um, uh, what, 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 was the, what was the thing? Remember how we've talked about the Spanish and what they did in South America with converting people and they would build the temples or they would build the churches on top of the temples dedicated to saints? Hey everyone, it's you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, it was very common for missionaries to come in and say, hey, this is the actual God. This is who you should be worshiping. So what they would do is they would typically just add a statue of Jesus or, you know, Mary in with their gods in their little temple. So when they went to pray every single morning, they would also just pray to Jesus. And I think a lot of members of my family actually did that as well. Like your your grandmother, right? Didn't she do that? Yeah, my grandmother, her family, just like it was part of the culture where they're not monotheistic. They're, they're multiple gods. So you tell them, hey, worship this guy. They're going to worship him. Yeah, him and like the 50 others. Yeah. So that's in a society that has a little bit more uh, independence and control over itself. In this case, because you have the Zulu kingdom, they were afraid of missionaries essentially supplanting the royal authority of the king. At least that is what Sichuayo was afraid of. So in 1874, Lord Carnivon, who had successfully brought about the Federation in Canada, he thought that a similar scheme might work in South America. So then you have Sir Bartle Frere, who was sent to South Africa as High Commissioner to make this happen. And one of the obstacles to making this scheme happen was that there was a lot of independent states that were there in South Africa. You had the Republic, you had the Kingdom of Zululand, you have all these different tribes. They needed it to be um, consolidated. So now in September of 1876, there was this massacre, right? You had a large number of girls who married men of their own age instead of men from an older regiment which had been ordered by Sichuayo, which created this massive protest from the government of Natal and the occupying governments were usually inclined to um, interfere when something like this would happen. It sounds kind of weird, though, doesn't it, that, uh, that these girls would just be massacred for marrying older men? Wait, yeah, so they couldn't just pick who they wanted to marry. Not exactly. They technically could, but it was like, imagine if it's within um, brackets, right? Remember that whole age regiment thing? Where yeah. You have, so you have the young adult men. You have the adult men, and you have the older men. Well, the older you were, the more seniority you had, the more priority you were supposed to receive. So if you were unmarried at that age, then the younger brides would be prioritized for you. That makes a lot of sense. So they married... The older, more established warriors. Okay. Who were the elite cream of the crop so to speak it's just really weird because still it's like an arranged marriage but it's like guideline marriage yeah yeah i guess you could put it it wasn't quite arranged but it was like a guideline or framework that they had to work with so that's what they would do 
So this whole thing was a little bit of a PR issue, and it created an amount of tension between Sechueo and Transvaal over border disputes and other things. Like, these issues were already there, but then this incident happens, and it's like everyone is up in arms. It's kind of like um, if we're already having issues with Iran, and then there's all the protests that are going on over there right now. It just heightens tensions further, if you can equate it to anything. Not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. But it, it, it really goes to show what people have been like throughout all of history. I like how you say it's just a little bit of a PR issue. They got slaughtered, but it's just a tiny little PR issue. Did you want me to talk about so many other horrible things in history? There, we can talk PR issues, mind you. In fact, actually, wait, that might be a fun podcast episode it of really just would. PR disasters in history of like things, times that things went terribly wrong. Oh, oh, I think that would be a good one. Okay. I'm going to save that one. We're going to do that one in the future. That would be fun. Okay, okay. So this is all happening, right? And then you have Sir Theophilus Shepstone, who is this dude that Sichueo actually thought was his friend. He regarded him as like a brother. He supported him in the border dispute. But in 1877, he led a small force into the Transvaal and persuaded the Boers to give up their independence. So Shepstone then becomes the administrator of Transvaal, and in that role, he saw all of these border disputes happening, and instead of supporting the Zulu, well, now he's supporting the British, because he's the administrator there. Of course he has to get involved. So then there's this commission. You have a commission that is appointed by the Lieutenant Governor of Natal in February of 1878 to report on the boundary question, the issue of this border dispute they're having. The commission reported in July, and it found almost entirely in favor of the contention of the Zulu. So Sir Henry Bartle Frere, who was then High Commissioner, he thought the award was one-sided and unfair to the Boers, and he stipulated that on the land being given to the Zulu, the Boers who were living on it should be compensated if, you know, they were made to leave, or if they chose to remain, that they needed to be protected. Basically, the British, you know how we have this theory of like, oh yeah, the British is going in and conquering everything? You know, like, that's literally a thing when it comes to the stuff in history. What? The British conquering? The funniest detail about all this is that it was a very common trait in history for these different colonial groups for the government not ordering these things. It's done by, like, private individuals who pretty much want to get glory or for things to happen. Right? Like, that, that, that straight up is what happened here. So, you have Frere. Who thinks, oh, yeah, no, of course they're going, like, this commission, it's a British commission, of course they're going to say the British are in the right. Nope. They go and support the Zulus. So now, the British who are there are like, well, damn it, um, I guess we need compensation if we're going to be made to leave. But of course, that didn't really work. Sichueo, who was, he found that he now had no allies there. He was now perceived by these British soldiers to be in a defiant mood, and this was outrageous to them. So in 1878, Frere goes and uses a minor border incursion. Basically, two warriors had fetched two eloped girls from Natal as a pretext to demand 500 heads of cattle from the Zulu as reparations. Sechueo only sent around 50 pounds worth of gold. And when two surveyors were captured in Zululand, Frere then demanded more reparations, and Sechueo again refused. Freyer then sent emissaries to meet him and tell his demands. Remember that whole thing I told you about cattle? Like, this isn't just like a simple thing of cattle. Like, cattle, are, that is wealth. That is a ludicrous amount of cattle to have to give someone in the first place for, for any reason. So for it to be over such a arguably small thing was ludicrous. And of course, it's going to be refused. So with the Transvaal under British control, Frere was convinced that the main obstacle to confederation was the Zulu being independent. So he was determined to crush them. So the Zulu were a highly militaristic society, and he thought that if he could give a series of demands and different things to kind of um, egg them on, that it would make, well, something happen. As High Commissioner, he demanded that the military system be remodeled. The youths were supposed to be allowed to marry as they came to a man's estate, and the regiments were not to be called up except with the consent of the Council of the Nation and also of the British government. Now, Gabby, when I say it like that, do you know what that means? 
No. What does it mean? Okay. So the gist is, if if he's not allowed to raise the army without the permission of basically the, the kingdom's council, but also the British, that means the British would have full control of the Zulu kingdom's army and could just order them to not be an army. Okay. That's what I suspected. And I was like, there is no way they would even think that someone would agree to these terms. That's but the I was point. Wrong. That's the point. The, the point is to make insane, crazy demands because it, it's got it's a kind of negotiation tactic. It's been used all over throughout history. You start with something crazy, like huge, and then you walk it back a little bit and then you become more, quote, reasonable. But in this case, this was a provocation. It was specifically something giving such a ludicrous demand. This was basically saying, hey, you're not going to be allowed to raise an army anymore. We will control your army. It's annexation. It's the ending of the Zulu land as a kingdom. That, that, that's literally what it was. Was that just to anger them? Just to anger them. That's the idea. Because it means they're either going to get annexed if they accept, or it's going to result in a fight, either which he wants. It's like the shiftiest ultimatum on Earth. Pretty much. It's an ultimatum that is designed to be refused. That, that's kind of the point of it. So, Frere does this. But he does it on his own. As High Commissioner, he technically can do something like this, but in order for it to get involved with the British military, the government needs to know about it. But he doesn't want to let the British government know what's going on, because he knows that if the British government learns about what it is that he is trying to do, they are not going to support him. So he issues this impossible ultimatum to the Zulu on December 11th, 1878, and with a definitive reply having like they need this to be sent back by the 31st of that month only 20 days later in the meantime he delays sending any kind of notice back to the british government so that by the time they hear about what's happening things have already started the entire idea is to make sure that he can get a fight going so that the british will be forced to actually do something could you imagine being the british ruler and military just like hearing about this war. Oh, shit. We got to go fight now. You idiot. I would have said no. Yeah, that's why I didn't tell you. It's, it's like, it's that like it, a three arrow. It's like when Joya will want something, but she won't really like ask for it. She'll just do it. It's the kid reaching into the cookie jar, grabbing a cookie out with like dirty fingers and then going up to their mom. Mom, can I have a cookie? You're like, it's already too late. You have a cookie. It's already in their hands. It's covered in whatever grime is on it. Like, at this point, they have to do it. They have to get the cookie. And the cookie, in this case, was Zululand. So a concession was granted by the British until January 11th, 1879, because Sechueo just chose to not respond in the first place. But after that point, a state of war was determined to be active. So then we have Lord Kelmsford, the commander-in-chief of the British Invasion Force. This guy goes and assembles an 18,000-troop-strong force along the border of the Zulu Kingdom, ready for the invasion. This force consists of a variety of different troops. You have the standard redcoats, you have the colonial volunteers, you have the African auxiliaries, you have a whole mixture of different kinds of troops. And his initial plan was a five-pronged assault into Zulu territory. This was, again, despite the fact he had no authorization from the British government. The British government had been kept in the dark as much as possible in order to avoid any kind of political interference. That's just how this goes. So they send these men that they, I, I assume they trust. And they just rip everything to shreds. Pretty much. Drag them into a war. Pretty much. Ruin you, relations. You gotta get that glory, baby. For glory? Well, in this case, it was like in order to achieve this goal that they imagined and they had an idea of how to achieve it in a very rough method that technically speaking would work and in the end did work, but also created a whole host of problems at the same time. It's just hard to wrap my head around it. Like, imagine doing something without the backing of your government, but in the name of your government. Do people still do that? I don't oh, yeah. think they can. Yeah, no, people still do it. People, Gabby, people make claims all the time about, oh, I'm doing this on behalf of something and then or someone. And then that person's like, I didn't want that. I didn't order that. What the hell are you talking well, about? Yeah, that? but I don't think they can do it to the extent, you know, in a, on an international scale. True. But think about this. People do things all the time in the name of religion. That I mean, yeah, is not like 
that is not something that is within their book or belief or whatever. And they still do it because it's in the name of that religion or belief system that they believe that they are doing something for their idea of the greater good. This was that, but it's like for your own political glory and consolidation of the countryside. People did it all the time. But this is the situation that we're in. War is basically breaking out. And the prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, he was staunchly opposed to any kind of war with the Zulus. And so they were going to force his hand. With overconfidence, Kelmsford then settles on a three-pronged attack, with an objective being to take the Zulu capital of Lundi. So on January 11th, the invasion begins, and in command of the force of 4,700 men, Kelmsford then crosses the Buffalo River at a mission station called Rorick's Drift and advances unopposed to Isandwala, where they set up camp. So in the face of this invasion, Sechweo goes and mobilizes the Zulu armies on a scale that no one had ever seen before. They did not believe that he would be able to get as many men as, they, as he did. This was possibly some 24,000 warriors, maybe even up to 40,000 by some accounts. The Zulu then divided their forces into two, with one section heading for the southern column and the remainder making for Kelmsford's center column. So the center column reaches Isandwala on the 20th of January, 1879, and they encamp on the lower slopes of it. Against any kind of official military policy, Kelmsford did not order the camp to be loggered. Now, I might be mispronouncing that, but uh, this, what this is, Gabby, this is a military strategy in which you would create a wagon circle for defense. You'd basically circle the column support wagons, the things that are holding all the ammunition and all the other stuff, which are really heavy. You would circle them around the camp in order to create a kind of makeshift fort behind so that troops could form a defensive position if they were attacked. Instead, on the morning of the 22nd, Kelmsford leaves just 1,300 troops guarding the camp, and he goes out looking with a sizable number of men to try and find and then attack what he thought was the main Zulu army. But in reality, the small number of Zulu warriors that Kelmsford scouts spotted and then reported back to the general, this was actually a trick, something that Setueo's commanders had done in order to draw out Kelmsford and then be able to attack his forces from behind with the bulk of the main Zulu army. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And this ruse worked. This overconfident, pompous aristocrat marched 2,800 soldiers away from the camp, splitting his forces in two. Okay, what is it with people splitting up? Like, this is not the first time an army got defeated. No, people are, are splitting up. People are able to be tricked like that. That happens. The bigger kick is his force is so small already, right? It's not half the size of the Zulus. It's a quarter of the size, 20% of the size, maybe even 15% of the size. And he's just dividing it smaller. But there is such a degree of confidence that the British had in their own superiority, their weapons, their tactics, everything, that they believed there was no way that they could lose. They could take a force of 5,000 and they could crush a force of 30,000. They easily. really thought that. Yes. I mean, I guess if they look at it from their own weapons perspective. In many cases formal, in history, it has been true. More formal training, but did they not think that maybe this other force was also trained? This is why you're supposed to still use precaution. The idea is to never underestimate your enemy. This is a core belief in the art of war, is to always, 
overestimate your enemy so that that way you won't be surprised by things. You want, you cannot believe that your opponent is stupid. You have to play it cautiously. You might be wrong in that situation. They might actually be stupid, but you don't know. So basically, he just wasn't a very good general. It doesn't seem either that or he was just overly confident. Probably a bit of both. Probably a bit of both, to be honest. So while Kelmsford is off chasing this imaginary Zulu army, the real one goes and moves up the valley of the Nebobinga. Or Nebobinga. Okay, okay, don't hurt yourself. How do I say that? Hold on. Negwabeni. I said that completely wrong, different. It's the Negwabeni. So the Negwabeni here, and then back at the British camp, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pauline was in charge of the camp's defense. Now again, Pauline was an administrator. He was not a soldier. He was very inexperienced, and that really did contribute to the disaster that was about to happen. Pauline could have been replaced at 10.30 that morning when Colonel Anthony Dunford arrived at Rourke's Drift with five troops of the Natal Native Cavalry and a battery of rockets, bringing the camp's fighting force up to 1,700 men. Dernsford, who was a seasoned soldier, was actually Pauline Sr., and tradition in the army dictated that he should have taken command. But you know what he did? What'd he do? Nothing. He just, he didn't. He instead chose to not take command and just leave this much less experienced man who is an administrator, not a soldier, in charge. So when the attack came, it came very quickly and suddenly. The minute the encampment at Negwabeni was discovered by British scouts, the entire Zulu army sprang into action. The plan was instantly changed from attacking Kelmsford rear to instead going and attacking the camp at Isandwana. Word reached Pauline that a large Zulu force was approaching fast and in huge numbers, and as the warriors began to arrive over the horizon, they started to muster into the Impi. Now, th this is the thing that you talked about in the beginning, Gab. I'm so glad that you remember this. The Impi is the traditional Zulu formation of three infantry columns that together represent the chest, horns, and loins of the buffalo. The central column of the Impi headed directly for the camp, while the two horns of the left and right columns fanned out on either side of the camp in order to encircle the British. Pauline sent all six companies of the 24th foot out to engage the central Zulu column, head on. Now at first, again with superior weapons, superior tactics, everything, the British firing, this just completely held off the attack, and with considerable ease, it crushed anything that was coming their way, especially with the help of their two mountain guns of the Royal Artillery. What they were using at the time was the Martini Henry breech-loading rifle. This is a breech-loading rifle that is accurate, it is fast to reload, it could fire at something like 12 rounds a minute, and against forces that were mostly equipped with spears and shields, it was going to shatter right through them. And the experienced soldiers of the 24th foot were able to hold the central column of the MP at bay, inflicting heavy casualties on the Zulu sides, and forcing many of them to retreat behind Isandwana Hill in order to shelter from the bullets. Unfortunately, for these soldiers that were holding the line against the Zulu central column, the horns of the MP made some very serious headway against the less experienced opposition. So Dernford was defending the British right flank, and he had already lost his rocket battery and was now hemorrhaging troops. Unlike the regular soldiers of the 24th foot, Dernford's forces mostly consisted of African troops who were not fully armed with Martini Henry rifles. Only one in 10 of these troops actually bore firearms, and even then, they were armed with inferior muzzle-loading rifles. So faced with certain death or escape, Dernford's men then began to leave the battlefield before they could be encircled and cut off by the MP. With Dernford's troops now diminishing fast, the rate of fire began to drop. And with less fire, that meant that the Zulus were able to start pressing against Dernford's defensive line. They pushed it back towards the 24th foot, who were still holding the central column of the MP at bay. And as Dernford's men retreated back against the left horn of the MP, the 24th's foot's right flank, which up until this time had been protected by Dernsford, now they were exposed. Realizing that he couldn't hold the line anymore against the central and left-hand columns of the Impi, Pauline then ordered a fighting retreat back to camp. This was done in a fairly orderly fashion by the stout regulars of the 24th, 
But unfortunately, Durnford's retreat was not orderly at all. It completely exposed the flank of the 24th G Company, which was very quickly overrun and butchered by the Zulu. And as the remaining troops fell back to the camp, the skies above them darkened. There was a solar eclipse that occurred at 2.29 that day, turning the skies black for several minutes. And when the sun returned, not one tent was left standing in the camp, and the area was now a massive killing ground. The final stand here was brutal. The British soldiers stood back to back, furiously stabbing away with their bayonets as wave upon wave upon wave of Zulu warriors thrust at them with spears and battered at them with clubs. There was screaming all throughout the camp, and soldiers died where they stood. Durnford and a valiant band of native infantrymen and regulars of the 24th Foot had managed to keep the two horns of the Impi from joining up by defending a wagon park on the edge of the camp. They could only hold out for so long, though, because their ammunition, eventually, was going to run out. So then they had to resort to hand-to-hand combat until they were overwhelmed. Durnford's body was later found surrounded by his men, all stabbed and beaten to death. Pauline didn't fare any better than Durnford. His body was actually never formally identified. He's said to have either died early on in the fighting, or after they retreated to camp, or in one of the desperate last stands that took place at the end of the battle, where the remaining soldiers fought on until they were overwhelmed and killed. As the remnants of the camp began to flee, no quarter was given to the remaining British or native soldiers. Those attempting to flee were cut down as they ran, while those lying wounded on the ground were then stabbed or clubbed to death leaving a trail of butchered British soldiers reaching all the way to the Buffalo River, the very same river that Kelmsford's men had so confidently crossed just 11 days earlier. It was a complete and utter disaster. As the enemy melted away, they took rifles, they took ammunition, they took artillery, they took supplies, they took all of this. It was a huge, huge disaster. Of the 1,700 men, They were tasked with defending the camp. 52 British officers, 806 regular rank-and-file soldiers, and 471 African troops had been killed. On the Zulu side, it was an estimated 2,000 that lay dead. The Battle of Isandwana remains to this day the worst defeat ever inflicted by a native force on the British army. That is a lot. That is so much. It is. In fact, there's, a, there's, there's one thing I didn't put in here, but I was going to tell you about. In my research when I was doing this, there is a famous painting that I believe is called The Last Soldier of the 24th. And what it is, is the final surviving soldier of the 24th Foot Regiment hiding in a cave, killing man after man after man as they come in until he runs out of bullets and is then forced to fight to hand-to-hand combat before he was dragged out and killed. Is it real? Yeah. That is like the account of the last remaining soldier who fought to the death in a cave trying to defend himself. And that's where the Battle of Isandwana draws to a close. But that's only the first part of the story. It's the majority of it because it leads up to it. The final event is not as long. But that's what happens here. So after the battle, you have several other Zulu regiments that are under Sechweyo's younger brother, the Prince Dabulamanzi Kamapande, and they reached the Buffalo River, cutting off the few escaping British. Now these regiments had not been involved in the battle, and were looking for a way to join in on the success. Dabulamanzi was a rather aggressive leader, and he was determined to lead these Zulu regiments to further triumph by capturing the British base of Rourke's Drift on the Buffalo River. So a single company of infantry garrisons this mission station at Rourke's Drift. It is B Company, 2nd Battalion, 24th Foot. Although the 24th was designated as the South Warwickshire Regiment, the company was manned largely by Welshmen, and the company color sergeant was Frank Bourne. The sole officer of the company was Lieutenant Gonneville Bromhead. The mission belonged to the Reverend Otto Witt, who was a Swede. Mr. Witt's church had been turned into a store by the British Army and his house a military hospital under Surgeon James Reynolds. You had Lieutenant John Chard of the Royal Engineers who arrived in Rourke's Drift on the 19th of January 1879 with a party of sappers. 
Chard had cause to journey up to Isandwana immediately before the battle, and on his return, he saw groups of Zulus. So on the 22nd of January, 1879, the garrison hears firing from the distant battle, and a group of officers climbs the hill nearby. They see what they eventually realized was parties of Zulus advancing towards the mission station. News of the disaster of Isandwalda was then later confirmed by the arrival of Lieutenant Ardendorf from the camp. So the British garrison sets up to fortify the mission station. Tents are struck down, they're stored, and the buildings loopholed for defense. The store, the church, and the building, Witt's house, were then linked by walls of mealy bags. A party of Durnford's unit arrives and was posted forward to hold the Zulu advance as long as possible. At 4.20 p.m., firing was then heard from the hill, and the men of Durnford's unit returned to the mission station and then left for Helpsmacher, which is the nearest Natal town. The company of Natal Native Infantry also left, leaving the regular British troops and some Natal Irregulars. The garrison then very quickly built a short perimeter line of biscuit boxes in order to accommodate the greatly reduced numbers of soldiers. Then, all of a sudden, 500 Zulus appeared over the hill to the south, running towards the mission station. They were met by heavy fire from the garrison, and some 50 yards from the wall, they veered away from the hospital, or around it, rather, to attack from the northwest. But the fire of the garrison drove them back, and they had to go to ground in the undergrowth, which in this case was left uncleared. Normal protocol is that you'd remove it to make sure that your line of fire was not obscured, but they didn't really have time. There just, there simply wasn't enough time. So the main body of Zulus then comes up and opens a heavy fire on the British from cover around the west and northwest of the mission station. The hospital at the western end of the fortification then becomes the focus for the fighting. It gets set on fire, gets stormed by the Zulus, and eventually it becomes untenable. As many men were extracted as possible from it, and the remaining patients that were stuck inside perished in the flames. Private John Williams, Henry Hook, William Jones, Friedrich Hitch, and Corporal William Allen all received the Victoria Cross for their defense of the hospital building, fighting with bayonets once their ammunition was expended, and they contested every single room with the attacking warriors. Now, the fighting was now concentrated on the wall of the biscuit barrels that were linking the mission house with the mealy wall. And as night fell, the British withdrew to the center of the station, where a final bastion had been hastily assembled. The light from the burning hospital assisted the British in their fire, and the Zulu attacks were resisted until around midnight, when, unexpectedly, the ferocity of the assault just fell away. Firing would continue until around 4 a.m., when the Zulus withdrew. By then... The British held only the area around the storehouse, and that's it. At 7 a.m., a body of Zulus appeared on the hill, but no attacks came. It became apparent that the Zulus at this point could see Kelmsford Column approaching from the direction of Isandwana. So the Zulus turned and left. Soon afterwards, the column arrived in the drift and crossed the Buffalo River, marching right up to the mission station. Kelmsford was initially very happy that he found the garrison alive and still resisting, but was then having to deal with the despair at finding that there were no survivors from Isanthawana that had actually escaped to Rourke's Drift. Zulu's casualties from this fight seemed to have been around 500 men. The garrison of the mission station only comprised of eight officers and 131 non-commissioned ranks, and of these, 17 were killed and 10 wounded. After the massive disaster of East Ndwanda, they really needed this massive victory. I say massive. It wasn't big, but it was a big morale booster. That's what she said. <laughs> Though ironically enough, you know what is really terrible about this fight, Gabby? It is the fact that the great Zulu victory of Isandwana is the exact thing that stopped them from getting a better peace deal. Well, that's no fun. That's a catch-22. It is. So here's, here's the big kicker. Remember how I told you that the British government was not going to support the war? They didn't want any of it. The public didn't want war. They didn't want any of that. Well, yeah, but they're not going to take a defeat lightly. Exactly. They're going to be like, um, everybody got massacred, slaughtered. We want blood. Yep. So when news reached home, both of the massacre and then of the valiant defense of Rourke's Drift, the British public began baying for blood. 
So the government duly obliges their vengeful subjects, and in just under six months, an enlarged invasion force is then sent to conquer Zululand. The kingdom would then remain a British protectorate for the next 18 years, until it was fully annexed and absorbed into Natal in 1897. And so you may wonder, what happened to Setueo, the courageous king who stood up to the might of the British Empire and then won the day? Well, he was captured following the Battle of Alundi on the 4th of July, 1879, and was exiled first to Cape Town and then to London. Now, it was there that he may have charmed a number of people, but his treatment by Bartle Frere and Lord Kelmsford, that really pissed a lot of people off. Like, this was a guy who, as the king of the Zululand, was originally something almost like a friend to the British, or at least a, um, not a compatriot, but like someone who was willing to work with them. And I guess the idea was, if that was how a friend was treated, then what did that mean for an enemy? What did that mean for anyone else? So Sichuayo eventually returns to Zululand in 1883, and he dies on the 4th of February, 1884, and is then buried in a field near the Nukanzane River, in what is today now modern South Africa. He was the last king of an independent Zululand, a friend and then unwilling foe of the British, and the empire upon which the sun never set. I love how they saw how nice he was and charming, and then they were like, wow, how could we do this to him? Well, it's like, he wasn't nice, but he was from what we understand, he was, a, um, he was a charming person, at least to interact with and speak with. He was also a bit of a tyrant in his own rule, but he was a person that worked with the British, at least initially. So for him to be treated like that, all for some either glory hound or for an idea of some officer who specifically went against the government to do that, it was just one of those series of unfortunate things that spiraled into that i'm really glad militaries are a lot more organized now so people can't step out of line they can't do things well they can for glory but in in this way to this extent to this extent yeah at least with modern western militaries there are still still a number of things that for the individual control that a general might have in politics in some countries that could do so but i do get exactly what you mean but anyway that is the end of today's episode I appreciate all of you, and again, if you heard at any point in here any little throat clearing or anything like that, I apologize. I'm a little bit under the weather. This has actually taken a lot longer to record than it ever should have because of my voice. Thank you very much. I appreciate all of you, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.